The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. The Brandon Peters Show, and again with the Summer of 82 at 40 series. The Summer of 82 at 40. A weekend-by-weekend look at the movie's release during the summer of that year. As always, along for this journey from Forbes and the forest, singing with the animals, thumping his feet, Scott Medelson. Greetings, I have returned. With secrets from somewhere this episode we'll be looking at the weekend of july 2nd through 4th nowadays there would be some stuff going on during that weekend of july 2nd through 4th in 1982 you know what let families go out and have their cookouts celebrate your independence don't go to the movies but if you do go see et again for the eighth It's never coming out on VHS. <laughs> you have to see it. Betamax can't get it. <laughs> CED isn't even planning for it. <laughs> HB no. So, but yeah, Scott, so like, usually there's there's some movie that hits around this weekend or right before it to try to capitalize on two weekends. And then th- this is, we have a re-release and a animated feature that doesn't, it, it's significant. Like, I bet we'll get to it. I guess we'll hold off on that till we get to it, the significance of our main attraction for this weekend. But it's just really weird that there's nothing it's, here. And it's not like it's, anything backed off here. I looked I looked to see, like, did anything back off of this weekend? No. No. It just it, the one big newbie is sort of a sliding doors moment for Hollywood history of what could have been. Yeah. Yeah, because then next week we have only we've been having multiple releases heavily, but these next two weeks we have we're talking about a re-release from the previous week, but there was only one new release this weekend, and then next week we'll have one new release, but a, a significant new release next weekend, and we're we'll, we're gonna jump ahead of re-release to have something else to talk about next weekend, but a rather light two weeks in a row coming up here in 1982 as July starts. Um, I know. I think this podcast has peaked, Brandon. Yeah, it's peaked. It's over. <laughs> uh, so uh, let's go over here for, as we always start out, the news of the moment here. It's the news of the moment. This is a phenomenal thing. Where did you get the idea to do this? Uh, when did it hit you? You said it was a 20-year dream. Yes, sir. Uh, it hit me when I was a uh, young boy, about 13 years old. I was in an Army Navy surplus store. So a weather balloon dangling from the ceiling, and I just got the idea uh, to put uh, to inflate these balloons, and I figured if I had enough of them, it'd lift me. Uh-huh. The idea was just, you know, the float. Yeah. And I was fascinated by it, and I fulfilled the 20-year dream. June 29th, uh, the U.S. Voting Rights Act of 1965 was extended. Was it a bigger, bitter confrontational debate? 
I don't know. I don't no, want to know. No, it was almost nope. unanimously confirmed or reaffirmed, just mm-hmm. like it was every single freaking time up until the Supreme Court whacked it to pieces in 2013. <laughs> and now it's a partisan issue. Yeah. Stupid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Craziness. They also, on June 30th, the Federal Equal Rights Amendment failed three states short of ratification. More good news. Yeah. Yeah. There's going to be some news stories that are creeping up to um, like this darkly dark foreshadowing here. But on June 30th, Orbiter Challenger rolled out at Palmdale. That's the beginning oh of, of yeah. Ne- well, we'll update you next week on that one <laughs> and probably the following week. And then it's going to be bad. Yeah. Uh, if we, yeah. Uh, so on uh, June 30th, a uh, New Jersey NHL franchise officially named the Devils by fan balloting. Legend of the Jersey Devil, a creature that allegedly inhabited the Pine Barrens of South Jersey. So, New Jersey. Jersey Devils. On July it's a game. Fir- this podcast is far more hockey than I was expecting. There's a lot of hockey happening in the summertime. <laughs> We've had a lot of hockey. I'm trying to pick some of the oddball stuff, like, you know, with baseball and this stuff. No, no, and all that. But like, you know what? The hockey, soccer, random track stats. I'm here for it. Tennis, golf. Imagine when they play hockey in the summer, they get all really wet. Right. Don't they do it on rollerblades in the summer? They go <laughs> get their midriffs on. <laughs> oh, but on July 1st, Cosmos 1383, first search and rescue satellite was launched. It would never meet up with the Challenger. Spoiler alert. On July 1st, also Cal Ripken Jr. makes the first of his record 2,216 consecutive memo B starts at shortstop for the Baltimore Orioles. Um, on July Second, Larry Walters, using a lawn chair and 42 helium balloons, rose to 16,000 feet. I believe you can... I know that image of him and that is uh, pretty iconic. On July 3rd, in tennis, women's Wimbledon, uh, Martina Navatarola beats Chris Everett 6-1-3-6-6-2 for the first of six straight Wimbledon singles titles. And over in July 4th, a Golf Canadian Open Women's Peter Jackson Classic, not that Peter Jackson. St. George's CC Sandra Haney wins by one shot from Beth Daniel. And July 4th, NASA Space Shuttle Mission Columbia 4, STS 4, lands at Edwards Air Force Base. Uh, notable deaths uh, during this week were Peter Bayman, a fashion designer, or Pierre uh, Bayman, a fashion designer. Uh, John Everett Watts, a composer, and Terry Higgins. Birthdays this week. Who was born this week? The wonderful Lizzie Kaplan. William Belly, from, who's a drag queen, been on the drag race and all that stuff. Andy Knowles of the band Franz Ferdinand. Carmela De, De Cesare, who is a Playboy Playmate of the Year in like 2004. And Hilary Burton, all born this week in 1982. From Walt Disney Pictures. Wake up! It's happening! It's Bambi and Thumper. Look, he's trying to get up. Back on the big screen. Watch what I can do! Two great friends. <laughs> Some fun, huh, Bambi? In one unforgettable adventure. And you can only see it at a theater near you. I made that last part up myself. Walt Disney's classic, Bambi. Rated G. Starts Friday at a theater near you. 
All right, Scott, our first movie today is was new in 42, talking about Disney's Bambi, directed by James Algar, Samuel Armstrong, and David Hand, written by Purse Pierce and Larry Morey from The Story by Felix Sultan, starring Hardy Albright, Janet Chapman, Donnie Dunnigan, and Gillis Sam Edwards, and Otis Harlan. It's the story of a young deer growing up in the forest. Now, Scott, this was not a Fathom event. This was a wide national release that we last week we mentioned hit the box office top 10. This is a thing that happened. Like A lot of people have seen classic movies if they were in their like teens and stuff like growing up because they would get re-released a lot. Yeah. I mean, especially Disney had sort of a, uh, and keep in mind, this was before VHS was super duper mainstream. And, you know, this was how you, these films made money is mm-hmm. they'd put them out in mass theatrical release again. Um, I remember in summer of 1991, it was such an adult skewing summer that 101 Dalmatians, which had been re-released many times since mm-hmm. 1961, uh, grossed $60 million that summer because partially because there was just nothing else for kids to see that year or that season. Now, maybe they were buying tickets and sneaking into Terminator 2. I don't know. But yeah, Bambi... Um, like a lot of quote unquote early Disney classics, the reception at the time was slightly more mixed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was beautifully animated. It was very naturalistic. But at the time, at least some critics argued that it was so bent on realism that it sort of lost the plot in terms of fairy tale fantasy. Uh, the film's shocking first act black twist, which Bambi's mother is shot dead by hunters, uh, was actually somewhat criticized in terms of, you know, why go there? Uh, that's what happens in, I believe, the novel that it's based on. But even Walt Disney's daughter at the time said, paraphrasing, you're Walt Disney, you could have changed it. Yeah. And looking back on that, it's another example of how you know retroactive critical consensus isn't, isn't always identical to how people felt at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's, you know, Vertigo or The Empire Strikes Back or you know, anything's of that, you know, that's, I'm sure I can think of a third one if I tried. <laughs> the Twilight series, perhaps, yeah. you know, which certainly is spoken of with much more fondness today than it was 10 years ago. You know, partially because, you know, the adults are in the room or the ones that were kids, you know, young teen girls when that franchise was popular. But I also, but, I, I don't, if the baby doesn't have that, I don't know if we talk about it like we do now. I don't th- I don't know if it has the legacy like it does. Like it's, I agree. It's, that movie sticks in your brain. That moment does. And yes. fucking Thumper. That's about... Yeah, yeah. You, know, yeah. The only, you are absolutely correct. As gorgeous as it is, and as melancholy and, and occasionally compelling as it is, you know, the reason it, it is talked about is because it was sort of the prototypical kid's first experience with death. And because there was a very long period of time where kids' entertainment was somewhat pardon the pun, gun shy about that kind of thing. <laughs> um, sorry, um, it was sort of the 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 one and only example of a, a big popular kids' film that was very blunt about you know sometimes your loved ones die for no good reason and you just have to move on. And that's really what the film is. I mean, even more so than something like The Lion King, which has its parental death and kind of a diabolical villain, you know, kills the father and then the son grows up to avenge his dad and takes over as king. You know, it's someone more conventional heroic myth. This is just cruel, random violence that amounts to nothing. You know, in some ways, you know, why I would still argue it's 
you know, it stings a bit more than even something like the Lion King or some of the more, even the more graphic Disney deaths is that they don't, this one doesn't play into a, a hero's journey as much. Yeah. And this um, was, it feels like a prototype when I was watching it, when I was watching it this time, I was like, this is the Lion King without yeah. like the kingdom, st- like, like nobody's like bowing to the family of Bambi or anything, but this is very much. There's a there's a load of the Lion King in this. Yes, a ton. I was I was kind of st- I never noticed it before, but it's it's uh, exactly that. When the Lion King was being you know promoted and sold before summer '94, it was basically being sold as Bambi in Africa. Mm. And yeah, and I, I you know to a certain extent, I think the difference is that you know with the Lion King, you have sort of the Hamlet story, which gives it a certain fantastical adventure feeling that this one, I would argue, does not have. Uh, that's neither good nor bad. It's, this is more of a straight drama almost. It's a, in an animation flex. Like yes. that Like, I totally watch I'm like, they're enamored with, like, the way they were able to document these animals and make them move realistically make the backgrounds for the time and stuff just they were enamored with what they could create here rather than a story there's a lot of floatiness like you mentioned to it like no plot like there's not a lot here there's enough but it's a lot of just watching things lot watching life in the forest it's like, it's, it's strained especially in retrospect the extent that a lot of the very early Disney animated films, mm-hmm. I would say up until maybe the eighties are basically episodic character studies. Yeah. You know, there's not much plot in the jungle book. <laughs> no. And there's, you know, even less plot in something like sleepy or a uh, sleeping beauty, um, which, you know, the title character is barely in the movie and barely in our own. Movie. Well, that one, that one is like painting the movie. Like every yeah. frame of that could be up in your house, like mm-hmm. any room, like, and it's, uh, ama- and I love it for that. But yeah, and that it's one in scope, that was a humongous failure for Disney. Yes. That retroactively now is like, oh, it's like the classic, you know, like, yeah, a lot of them. Yeah. Pinocchio wasn't a huge hit. Yeah. Fantasia was not a huge hit. And to a certain extent, I think it was part of Disney's strategy. You know, by re-releasing these films over mm-hmm. and over again, right. especially when VHS became a factor, releasing these films mm-hmm. over and over again to sort of retroactively build up the critical esteem to make them generational touchstones. Yeah, I saw Pinocchio. I saw P- Pinocchio was one of the first movies I saw in the theater that I can remember was a re-release of Pinocchio in the eighties. I saw Snow White in the theater in the eighties. Uh, like, and part of the also too, it's kind of smart because they were maybe thinking, okay, adults were the ones who were able to speak about this, write about this back then, but did the kids like it? And upon re-release, they become generational things because the kids grew up to go, oh, I enjoyed this as a kid. I'll show it to my kid. And you didn't have like VHS to run it through all the time. So it was passed on because they just had to wait for that generation to get a little old, older. Um, yeah. yeah. And once VHS became a variable, that was actually one big reason why Jeffrey Katzenberg, when he we took over Disney, you know, basically took over Disney, um, re- rejuvenated the animation department mm-hmm. because a you know legacy, it's Disney. We should be making cartoons, but but on a mercenary sense, you know, we can make lots of money selling VHS t- tapes of these old movies. If we have new movies to make, we can right. sell those too. We could do that. 
But like the, um, the 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 place the new Disney movies were at the time was not a, a popular. This was the no. the Fox and the Hound. I love the Great Mouse Detective, but so do I. That's not the the Sword and the Stone. We got um, Black Cauldron. Uh, you know, movies that people like now, but nobody cared then, and they weren't. But there, there was other animation studios doing better at the time, and other movies happened. You had Ralph Bakshi stuff. You had all sorts of good competition going on at the time and everybody trying to be their own rather than when you get to the 2000s they all try to be shrek and then they all try to be you know pixar they try, you know well the, the there was a perception at least when i was growing up and probably in the 60s and 70s as well that disney cartoons were for kids mm-hmm. i don't want to say they're for babies but that was sort of the sentiment yeah you no know, i remember you know and this is a weird story, but I assure you it didn't get weird. I had a crush on a, on a, uh, I think a teacher's assistant at my preschool. She was a teenager. I was like six. And she invited me to go see 101 Dalmatians when it was re-released in like 1985, 1986. And I remember being very conflicted because I did not want to see 101 Dalmatians because that was a dumb baby cartoon about dogs. <laughs> but I, did, I did want to go on a date with this young woman. Yeah. Um, I eventually, you know, caved in and went on the quote-unquote date sadly i did not get any action um but no the the, and when you started seeing you know the renaissance era with little mermaid and uh, beauty and the beast and aladdin specifically those three one huge thing that changed was the notion that you know adults or teens could watch these and wouldn't would a be entertained and it wouldn't be embarrassing right um, in fact, I remember, you know, Katzenberg made a point of having a preview screening of The Little Mermaid that was just for adults hmm. to see how the film played outside of the obvious child demographic. But now that movie it. is like a crime against whatever because it's fairy tale, it's old or whatever. Yeah. Well, that's the weird thing is is Sleeping Sleeping Beauty was such a flop in 1959. They didn't make another fairy tale romance mm-hmm. movie, princess movie, until Little Mermaid, 1989. Right. I mean, what's really bizarre is that Disney's been been selling the whole, you know, this isn't just your usual princess story shtick since at least 1989, 1992, maybe with Aladdin and Jasmine. Mm-hmm. You know, that was in response to three fairy tales that they made between 1930. Right. Yeah. You know, 1938 and 1959. It's not like you they know, were they were doing Dumbo, Robin Hood, like, yeah. like it wasn't just like, yeah, it wasn't just princesses 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 but and you know it's the idea of a a you know something like you know princess jasmine or or you know uh, rapunzel or ellen elsa yada 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 mm-hmm. be your pocahontas being reactions to conventional princess princess stories the deconstructions have now vastly outnumbered the quote-unquote genuine article right this is true um in the same way that, you know, I would argue, and, you know, I know we've talked about this a lot, these quote-unquote progressive Bond girl has now vastly <laughs> outnumbered the quote-unquote traditionalist Bond girl to the point where we, when we see one that's somewhat, you know, a damsel in distress or, you know, really wants to screw James and isn't a double agent trying to kill him, because that's yeah. most of the horror, really. Right. You know, that's almost shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's very true. Yeah, they try, but they bank on cultural amnesia to get away with selling this over and over again. As you know, this isn't your usual Bond girl, mm-hmm. or this isn't your usual Disney princess. But back to Bambi, which contains none of that. Yeah. No, it's 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 a good picture. 
it's clearly a labor of love, labor of love um, made in a time when it wasn't guaranteed that these films would be you know, financially successful. Right. And yes, I do agree with you that if not for the whole Bambi's mom dies thing, I imagine it wouldn't be all that much talked about today. Yeah. Because then you go back to it remembering that, but then you probably forgot about the attempted rape scene that happens Yes, in the movie where the butt comes in and Bambi's got to step up and stop a rape from happening. So, which is a really icky kind of feeling scene to watch, but it's there. I get it. Whatever. But when you're an adult watcher, you're like, oh, I I get what this scene is now. <laughs> As a kid. Nah, but. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Bambi, still decent. Still decent. Still decent. And these movies, they could come in. They could get re-released. Pick up a couple mm-hmm. extra million. Now, I Scott, you probably see once in a while Fathom events numbers, but they don't even come close to like no. this at all. No. And, you know, Andre One Dalmatians has been re-released so many bloody times mm-hmm. that it's one of the, in adjusted for inflation, it's one of the biggest grossing movies of all time. Uh, part of that is because, A, it's been re-released a bunch. B, it is a very light, campy, no drama, nothing particularly intense or whatever movie about a bunch of cute dogs. Right. So, yeah, I mean, you know, compared to something like Bambi or even Pinocchio, which has its intense, scary moments, you know, you don't have to worry about taking your kids to Hunter and Dalmatians. Nobody's well, going to cry. It's a suspenseful movie, honestly. There's yeah. some suspenseful stuff in there. Like, it, it works. It works. I remember when I was a kid, it was pretty suspenseful. I'm watching it again. I'm like, there's some well, well put together sequences in that movie. Uh, well, to be fair, I'm a cat person, so I was generally rooting for Cruella DeVille anyway. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Fair enough, fair enough. The funniest character on four wheels. Join Dean Jones for Herbie the Love Bug. Next on WKRP, a fire helps Herb's fantasy come true. Could you put your arm around me? Then it's Baker's Dozen. Two undercover cops, one undercover romance. Join their crusade for law and laughter Wednesday. What was on TV this week that people were watching? Our top 10 Nielsen ratings. Well, I'm going to tell you, Scott. Number one, as we always expect every week, it's MASH on CBS. So it's it's hit it again. Number two, Too Close for Comfort on ABC. Number three, House Calls on CBS. Four, Heart to Heart on ABC. Number five, Three's Company. Number six, WKRP in Cincinnati on CBS. Number seven, I don't think we've had this in here, uh, Laverne and Shirley. On oh. ABC. Welcome. Yeah, hello, Laverne. Hello, Shirley. That was a Happy Day spinoff, right? Yeah. Yes, I believe yep. so. One of them. And then, like, Joni Love Chachi came off that one or something. The Happy Days universe the is... Cinematic universe. Huge. Uh, number eight. <laughs> it was the CSI of its day. It was. Uh, number eight, Midnight Offerings on ABC. Number nine, 2020 on ABC. And number 10, Different Strokes on NBC. Coming in at 11, though, this week, the... Private Benjamin television series. That's been the first episode, but it wow, only that... lasted a few episodes. So, so people think this whole like movie to TV show things a new thing it has always happened. Oh, Mash, <laughs> Ma- yeah, we're talking Mash. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. There's like there was. Um, I know there's one coming soon, but there was a uh, League of Their Own TV show, Uncle Buck TV show, Ferris Bueller's Day Off TV. The '80s was full of well, that Oscar-winning movie or that hit movie. Let's. Not make a well, sequel. Parenthood Let's do got a TV two, t- two TV shows. Parenthood, yeah. One of which lasted maybe a season or two. The other one ran for like seven years. Right. Yeah. So I mean, it's always been. It has always been a thing. Uh, 
but um, none of them were grimdark. They were trying to recapture what they were. Uh, oh, like, um, what's a Breaking Away? That movie got a TV series. Yeah. So crazy. So crazy, these things. And sometimes the cast comes back for them. Some, some of the cast, they'll, they'll get people. Sometimes they come back for more. Radio plays them, record stores sell them, Billboard ranks them, and AT40 counts them down. And guess what, Scott? Since we don't have another movie, we're moving on to the Casey Kasem Top 40, the top 10 of which, guess what didn't come back for more, Scott? I don't know. Ebony and Ivory has finally been knocked off the number one spot after seven weeks. My God. And number 10 here this week, we have Caught Up in You by 30 Up 38 Special. So caught up in you, little girl. And it feels odd that we are in July. Rocky Three came out in May, the middle of May. Huge hit. It still continues to rock. But finally, Eye of the Tiger by Survivor, number nine. In the You'd think that would have been a presence before this, but all right. Love's been a little bit hard on me at number eight by Juice Newton. Number seven, Let It Whip by the Daz Band. Number six, Always On My Mind by Willie Nelson. Number five, Hurt So Good by John Cougar. No Mellencamp, just Cougar. <laughs> Number three, Ebony and Ivory. It didn't just fall one spot. It fell two because Rosanna by Toto takes number two. And the Human League with Don't You Want Me has finally topped Ebony and Ivory. Don't At you last. want me, baby? Yes. Don't you want me? Oh, yes. Yes. Take that, Paul and Stevie Wonder. <laughs> Finally, well, when we recorded this, I watched Ebony and I, or not Ebony and Ivory, I watched Summer of Soul last week, which had Stevie Wonder, which he said, okay, fine, you watch that movie. You go. Yeah, I'll move down a couple. So that's it. Some big action. A lot of new ones in there. A lot of movement. Finally, it was a stagnant number one. Now, Don Booth Productions creates a new world of animation where fantastic creatures Why have you come? Great dangers and great adventure await you. Look there. Discover the secret of Nim from the award-winning children's classic Rated G. Starts Friday, Plitt Century City, Hollywood Hollywood, and selected theaters. Moving on to our one movie release this week, Secret of, The Secret of Nim, directed by Don Bluth, written by Don Bluth and John Pomeroy, from the novel Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim by Robert C. O'Brien, starring Elizabeth Hartman, Derek Jacoby, Dom DeLuise, Arthur Mallett, Hermione Baddeley, Shannon Doherty, Will Wheaton, John Carradine, Peter Strauss, and Aldo Ray. To save her ill son, a field mouse must seek the aid of a colony of rats with whom she has a deeper link than she ever suspected. So this movie, I think, probably was a big deal in 82. This was Don Bluth leaving Disney, going on his own. Was this his first one on his own? Yeah, I think so. He was being groomed to basically take over. He was supposed to be it. He was supposed to be like the next big thing. And his animation has... A look of well, he did a he uh I don't know is Xanadu this year or the year before or no Xanadu was eighty wasn't it um if so he had done a, a sequence in like one of his first things after leaving Disney he did a sequence in Xanadu 
um, for an ELO song that turns it's movie turns animated. But this was uh, this was I imagine Secret of Nim was supposed to be a big deal. Maybe that's why it's all by itself this weekend. Is people thought, oh, the the Bluth movie's coming out. I do know the film was an explicit attempt to sort of recapture the quote unquote Disney magic. The idea with that Disney's films, again, this was an era where, you know, Robin Hood, Sword in the Stone, again, these, you know, these films are fine. They have a certain fan base, but they're not then and now held up with the esteem of the classics. And, you know, there were, you know, recycled animation, reused backgrounds, corners were being cut for better or worse. And I, I, don't say that's a criticism because animation is incredibly hard. I can't, you know, it's one of right. those things that just blows my mind just in theory. But anyway, but he was, you know, the idea of Secret of Nim was basically to make a film that looked and felt like the very first Disney films in that there were no corners cut. You, you, everything was there. Mm-hmm. You had facial reactions. You had new backgrounds. You had, you know, new and, and different movements for every character. Things, you know, that when you think of a, a fully animated cartoon, um, it's based on a novel. But weirdly enough, it's less fantastical than the novel, which I find of, of interesting choice. Huh. It's it's other than the skewed sci-fi premise, which involves rats being injected with like a brain hormone becoming you know, human smart, it's almost, I don't want to say realistic, but, you know, it's, it's you know, nobody has superpowers. Nobody's a wizard. Nobody's a witch. Um, it's not that kind of fantasy. For those at home, NIM stands for National Institute of Mental Health. Yes, so. <laughs> which is a fascinating plot twist when it's finally revealed. Yeah. And, you know, the film doesn't rush out and explain what's going on right away. No. And I think when you're watching it with the presumption of what an animated film feels like, you kind of assume that this is just a take it or leave it fantasy involving these anthropomorphic mice mm. that take, you know, it's basically a great mouse detective where right. you don't really have to explain what there's, you know, a world of anthropomorphic animals running around solving crimes. Right. Um, and I, but, t- yeah, oh, I never thought it's of a that. Price is a giant rat, rat singing a song and killing other mice with a giant cat. Okay, fine. I accept this fantasy. We'd have survival so, later. Yeah. Somewhere yeah. That's, that's actually, yes. That, you know, is, is sort of a, a skewed parable, a metaphor for, you know, obviously it's a Jewish immigrant story. Mm. Um, but this is like, it's, it's, you find out like a third of the way, maybe halfway through, that it basically takes place in our world, so to speak. <laughs> well, it starts you know, like, on like you know, a farmhouse. Yeah. Like, and you're like, and I was like, I thought this was a fantasy. Yeah. And it, the way they craft our world into becoming a fantasy world to these little creatures, it's really neat um, and works. But I'm like, Maybe they should have shown the farmhouse, but that's kind of part of the plot. I, it's weird. It almost goes the dark city route, especially the director's cut, where yeah. you know, you know, you're, you're sure you're kind of feeling that something's off, and you can probably put the big, right. know, the big two and two together, but you eventually get all the little deals. Oh, okay, that's what's going on. Right. Yeah. Um, but as a film, I mean, it's 
gorgeous to look at. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm in awe watching it, thinking of the work and hours that must have gone into this film, you know, in the good old days where you didn't have, you know, computer animation, where you just, you drew everything, period, yeah. end of story. Um, and it really is a labor of love. You're like painting as as, too. Like, yeah. Draw paint. As far as being a film, I don't think it's quite as compelling as an American tale or even, mm-hmm. you know, a land before time. I think it's more interesting as a time capsule or uh, as a sort of skewed, just off kilter animated fantasy. Yeah. That, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's not overly dark or mature or anything like that but it's, it's certainly more so than you know robin hood right again because this was during a time when again when you think of disney cartoons you think of oh that's just for babies i could watch rocky mm-hmm. looking back on it you know again you have to wonder if it had been a genuine hit would what would have happened with disney how does disney pivot to yeah, answer how does, it how do they answer yes. that yeah instead um, they make movies course, that probably hold up right next to this yeah and, you know, to be fair, Disney did what Disney always does and tried to undercut the competition. Basically, they refused. They they basically forbade theaters to play this film as a double bill with anything Disney. Right. And um, they put Bambi back in theaters to, you know, do that. Yeah. They, well, they surround it yeah. because they put Bambi back in theaters and they have their movie coming out next week. Yeah. And, yeah, they forbade this film from being a double bill with either of those. But they're the good um, guys. My corporation. <laughs> <laughs> as the cool kids online say mask off they are um, captain america See? <laughs> but no and you know it's, it's when i was a kid i i was you know again i i, I look at this from a mercenary point of view i was always amused by the punk moves that disney would do for example when don bluth's anastasia which 15 years later was very much advertised as you know a competitor to the Disney animation empire mm-hmm. back when Disney was kicking ass again. Mm-hmm. Um, and they re-released the little mermaid the weekend before Anastasia came out. Yep. And then in Christmas of 1998, when, you know, you had ants that came out in October, bugs life that came out in November, Prince of Egypt that came out in December. And then on opening weekend of Prince of Egypt, they didn't re-release a bugs life because it was still in first run theaters. They put on new and different outtakes because mm. something that they do with the first with a handful of early Pixar movies is they had animated bloopers. Yeah. Which I kind of wish they'd still do that, but whatever. They were very popular with a bug's life. Oh, it's funny. They're animated bloopers, blah, blah, blah. So for Prince of Egypt for the opening weekend, they put out new bloopers with a bug's life. Because, you know, they, they again, they're, we're all adults here. Yeah. You know, it's one corporation versus another corporation. Right. They, you know, they're allowed to play, you know, dirty pool if they want to. Yep. Yeah. And this one, I think I remember the look of the, like I've seen this movie a couple times, but I can never, yeah. I never remember everything about it. I remember it has the really cool thing with the lit eyes and just a lot of cool looking characters. And I know their movements, but the story I don't remember. The thing I hold most dear with the Don Bluth stuff from the eighties is Dragon's Lair video game. Oh yeah. I used to love anywhere they have that. I'd like. I just watched that demo play, and I would. I, I was entranced with that. I like. I wish like I played it a couple times, stuff. But like, man, I'm like, why can't this be a show or a movie instead of a game? <laughs> and he had the one like, uh, what was the other one? The space one, like Space Ace or something. Oh like yeah, that? yeah, 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 yeah. I love the animations of those, and I wanted those to be a thing. But that's that's some of the Don Bluth that, like around the time that I hold dear. 
and remember a lot more of than like Secret of Nim. Though it's not a bad movie. It's just I don't know. Something just it's, doesn't. Yeah. It's you know, the characters aren't terribly well defined. Right. It's a it's an ensemble piece. There's a ton of characters. Right. You know, none of which really stand out as the prime hero, the well, prime villain, up to a point, the prime villain and, you know, whatever, up to you know, maybe the end of the movie. Well, they have, um, they have names like Justin, too. That yeah. doesn't help. Like, I need you to be like Isario or like yeah. something weird. No, not like, this, is a, this is a movie that needs Star Wars prequel names. Yeah. Not my co-worker's name. I want like something. Yeah. <laughs> Star Wars prequel names. Like, yeah, that was or, you know, those generator names of fantasy characters online that we see but yeah it doesn't oh man I, it, unfortunately it just doesn't stick um be fair the film was you know it did eventually make its money um and it attracted the attention of steven spielberg which mm-hmm. is that's how amblin started working with don bluth for what yeah. would eventually become an american tale which was a huge smash that was yeah. uh land before time which of course spawned 675 direct-to-video sequels yes brandon one of these days you're gonna have to watch them all i know one day they, Sorry, they have box joke. sets now. They have box sets now. <laughs> so can all be there. I told you Jenny Nicholson beat you to it, right? I mean, uh, I still uh, have to do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> still have to do it. So, um, speaking of it's money, let's take a look at the box office where it oh. will not appear. Number one was, again, E.T. the Extraterrestrial with $17 million in its fourth weekend, a 29% jump. Uh, bringing its total to 87 million in 24 days. Uh, Firefox was in second place, rising. Obviously, it's a holiday weekend, so you're going to see some upswings here. Firefox did 5.4 million for a 5% bump, a $25.7 million 17 day total. Rocky three continued to have just remarkable legs, mm-hmm. earning $5.4 million, uh, up 6%, $72.8 million. Uh, Blade Runner would drop 14% despite being a holiday weekend, uh, four, uh, 4.99 million, I'm sorry, 5.3 million. Uh, 14.8 over 10 days. Annie would round out the top five with 4.9, 10% boost, 25.6 million. And uh, Star Trek uh, would earn 4.5 million in its fifth weekend, bringing its total up to 57 million, 0.7 million. It's a huge hit, don't get me wrong. Yeah. By modern standards, it's not super leggy. Yeah, Rocky Three is still there and it's not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which again, you know, they only spent 15 million on it. Good for them. Right. Poltergeist is sticking around in the top 10, 39, 38 million after five weekends. Uh, the thing unfortunately would drop 4% despite the holiday for a $2.9 million weekend and an $8.4 million 10 day total. Bambi would, I think that went, that re-released last weekend, but it we was were number 10. Up. Yeah. It was number 10 yeah. last weekend. Otherwise you wouldn't have anything to talk about this weekend. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, we're cheating a little bit. 1.9 million in weekend quote unquote two for a $5.7 million re-release total. Uh, a lifetime Bambi has made approximately $103 million. Now it's original theatrical release in 1942 earned a whopping $3 million. Hmm. It would be re-released in 1947 or another 2.2. Then it would earn $6 million in 1957, 9 million in 1966. 20 million in 1975. You can see why Disney keeps doing this. Yeah. And 23 million dollars in 1982. It would be re-released again in 1988, the summer of 88, where it would earn 39 million dollars. 
That's probably where I saw it. Yeah. 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 I mean, this, this, this was lucrative. Mm-hmm. And I remember after the Lion King was re-released in 3D in late 2011 and made $94 million domestic. Yeah. You know, there was a very brief period where they were sort of doing it all over again right. with their more modern fixtures. But come what may, none of them really broke out to the extent that the Lion King did because I mean, it's the Lion King. Um, and it was sort of a fad that lasted about two years. Yeah. Sorry, Home on the Range. Yeah, sorry for yeah, in general. And I think that's the top. Yeah, 10 we have one more. Author, author. Author, author, yeah. Yeah. But with eight million dollars after 17 days, a one point nine million dollar weekend, and in eleventh place, Sword and the Sorcerer, which by the way is once again available to rent or own on digital. I have now seen uh, it. Uh, I will very soon. I'm gonna try <laughs> to do that while I'm on the road this week. Uh as a passenger for the record. There you go. Um, um Porky's and freaking Porky's yeah. in twelfth place. But Megaforce fell to thirteenth. Yep. Dropping from ninth to thirteenth place. Uh with one point three million dollars. And battled Greece too, making seven hundred and one thousand dollars, <laughs> yeah. dropping thirty-one percent despite being a holiday weekend, with a whopping twelve point three million after twenty-four days. Whew. Poor Secret of Nymph opened to be fair, it only opened in eighty-eight theaters. Uh, it would make $386,000 in 88 liters for a still not great 4300 or excuse me $4,400 per screen average. Uh, it would eventually top out at approximately $10 million. Again, not a great number, mm-hmm. but you know, all told by the end with, you know, video rentals and I TV airings. The cable pretty decently. And cable. And stuff. You yeah. know, it's, it's, you know, you, you know, we have to remember that the, the post theatrical afterlife is very different than it is now. Yeah. You know, they, you really could make your money back in video eventually. There was like or a, what, like a four or five year circuit at life of a film. You had theatrical yeah. release, you had possible re-release, you had uh, HBO, you mm-hmm. had rental, you had VHS, you had TV premiere, like a net, yes. network TV premiere. And then, uh, yeah, it it made, it, a film had a life of like five years probably in a cycle. Yeah. And, you know, you could. You now know, it's all 45 days. Pretty much. So, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's one of the reasons why we saw a surge of, of, comparatively original and or new to you big budget theatrical pictures in the 90s the late 90s early 2000s because the dvd market was so consistent yeah it was pretty safe even if unless you just completely crapped out theatrically you'd be okay in the long run right yeah Yeah. and you know it's it's that's not where we are anymore no quick kill everywhere yeah and the 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 fact that the fact that we have to have so much fast turnaround means we have to have more content or more stuff too and we're just overloaded with more stuff than is humanly possible to keep up with yes especially in the streaming ecosystem mm-hmm. because it's it's intended to be something for everyone, which means, okay, fine, not everything is for you. But if you're someone that needs to keep up with pop culture, it's, well, it's if hellish. You're, if you're a film <laughs> television person that's genre-free, you like the art form, Yeah, you like a variety, you like to check, and it drives people like myself nuts. I'm like, yeah. I enjoy film. Like, uh, I'm, a, I'm a Marvel nerd. I'm, just like, I'm a film nerd. I like 
directors and stuff like that watching like all this stuff and there's just too much like there's just too much i like that two-hour movie that isn't an eight-hour miniseries exactly and but yeah, that's that's another conversation. For it is. Day. It is. That, <laughs> I that want to get on the soapbox. That was not happening in '82. But no. uh, this, what we talked about today, was happening on July 2nd through 4th, 1982. Scott, thank you for joining me once again. As always, before we sign out of here, let people know where they can keep up with you. Uh, Forbes.com, the ticket booth. Please Google some variation of Scott Mendelson. Forbes.com and the ticket booth. I'm at Twitter at, at Scott at Scott Mendelson. All right, and I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brandon 4 kuhd Tune in next week as Scott and I again have just one movie and one high-profile re-release to talk about. But what a double feature Tron and Raiders of the Arst, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark shall bake. Uh, till then, stay film positive. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Olsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. The Summer of 82 at 40 and News of the Moment themes by Press Maxson. Additional information on this and other episodes at thebrandonpetershow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at thebrandonpetershow.com. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found. Mm-hmm.